So today we're going to talk about what I think potentially are the most important two chapters in the Bible. The most important. That's Revelation 4 and 5. Because what we see is a vision of God's throne room. But it's a vision. So here comes a seven-minute abbreviated explanation of Revelation. So the genre of Revelation, and Drew mentioned this last week, um, the genre is apocalyptic. Now when we hear that word... We think the end of the world, destruction, bad things are coming. But the Greek word that gets translated as revelation is apokalupsis, which is where we get apocalypse from. It does not mean that. And Drew mentioned this last week. It means an uncovering or an unveiling. I would add to that a revealing. And here's what I mean by this. It's kind of a peek behind the curtain. Have you ever been to a play or a stage production where there's a curtain in front? And, and then sometimes the actors come out in front of it, and they, they do some dialogue in front of the curtain. But then at some point, that curtain gets drawn back, and all of a sudden, you as the audience now see this context. And you see what those actors turn and go into, and it creates just a whole new way of seeing things. That is what the Greek word for apocalypse really means. It reveals. And so what we see is John, or Jesus, he, he peeks out from heaven, and, and he opens it up and says, Hey, John, come here. Look. Look at what's happening. Well, while you're down here on earth, and, and these physical things are going on, here's the truth about what's happening in the physical world, because this is what's going on in the spiritual world. Jesus reveals the ultimate truth about the physical world by showing what is happening in the spiritual world. That's the first Big thing. It's a peek behind the curtain. Jesus is revealing to John, John's writing it down for us, the ultimate truth about the physical world by revealing what's happening in the spiritual world. Now, if only it were that easy. The thing is that Jesus reveals these things to John, and we, we see people having visionary experiences in the Bible a lot, and those things are revealed to him through hyperbolic symbolism and imagery. It's not a literal thing that happens. And I gave this example back in the Sunday seminar. If we think this is literal, then we start trying to figure out where are we in the chronological time of the end of the world. Well, one big thing that happened back in the 60s and 70s was that Bible scholars, who I think were a little bit not quite true, they would say, look, Apache helicopters are the locusts from Revelation chapter 11, because they have tails that sting and mouths that shoot fire. Well, did you think that John saw an Apache helicopter and just thought it was a locust? When we get, and, and I know we chuckle, but a lot of us grew up this way, didn't we? A lot of us started to try and figure out, because people told us, where are we in the end of the world? Oh, here we are. We're in the fourth trumpet. We're in the sixth bowl. But that's not what that is all trying to communicate to us. It's through hyperbolic symbolism and imagery. So to make this point, I want to show you this picture. Go ahead and put it up. You've had three seconds. What is this? Politics. It's a political cartoon. And what could we say about it? Politicians fight, right? You, and we got this in three seconds or less. About 30 of you have seen this picture already because I've used it a couple times in Bible studies. This is an image that has direct application to our real world. 
What does the elephant represent? Republican Party, the Democrats represented by the donkey. You see the United States flag in the boxing shorts and they're wearing. And the fighting might be the easiest metaphor to get, that they're wearing boxing gloves. But what if you, and since you're Americans, we get this, most of you, but what if you're a Republican or you're a, not a Republican, um, what if you're from the, the Democratic Republic of Congo and you're living in, in the jungle are you going to get this? Probably not. Neither would a cattle farmer from Argentina. They might, if they watch news, they might get the American flag, but probably not the symbolism in the donkey and the elephant. They're, they're not going to get those things, but we get it because of our context. You see, the first century world, to them, that was how easy Revelation was to understand. This symbolism and imagery. But we, to Revelation, are the Argentinian cattle farmer. We have to work hard to understand what is going on in the book of Revelation because what has happened in the last century with how it's been interpreted, it's been removed from its context and said that doesn't matter because they had no idea what they were seeing because it's about Apache helicopters and saying here's what it means for us. But then we forgot about the context. And so what we're going to try to do here over the next several sermons is to shove it back into its context, understand what it means for them, and only then can we bring it forward and what it means for us. We have to understand both of them. So the primary thing is that, um, that we're, it's revealed ultimate truth the phys- about the physical world by looking at the spiritual world, and that it's through symbolism and imagery. So there's my seven-minute introduction. And with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into the first main part of the vision. Last week, Drew covered the kind of the epistle part. There were letters to the seven churches. Now we're going to get into the formal part of the vision and what John actually sees. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, perhaps the most important part of all of Scripture, we're going to see a vision of the kind of things that are happening right now, have always been happening, and will always continue to happen forevermore. So let's go and jump in and let's read part of it. Revelation 4, verses 1, and we'll read through verse 8. Here we go. After this, that is the letters to the Laodiceans, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit. That signifies that we're now in a vision There is an apocalypse going on, a revealing. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Other translations would say jasper and rubies. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. 
And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Symbolism. Imagery. That is what we read. So what in the world does it mean? There's two different, usually, modes of interpretation that that we should look at. One of them is Old Testament references, and another one is first century modern Roman world type of things. So if your head's not hurting already, it will in a second, because I'm going to go through and show kind of the main images, well, yeah, some of them, in only five verses, okay? If you're type A person, uh, and like to write things down, just give up now. Um, you, you can go watch it later on YouTube and pause me because we're, we're just hustling through this. So in verse two, there's a throne in heaven, just like Ezekiel saw in chapter one and Isaiah saw in chapter six. Also a prophet, I think his name was Micaiah ben Imlah, saw in Kings 22. Verse three, there's one on the throne who's like jasper and carnelian or rubies. Whenever there's precious gems and jewels and metals showing up, we're in some kind of convergent space where God is meeting earth. That happens in the garden. There are jewels mentioned in Genesis 2. And in the temple and the tabernacle, the priest is wearing very fancy and fine jewels. Verse 4, there are 24 thrones with 24 elders sitting on them. You may have heard this being the 12 disciples plus the 12 tribes of Israel. Maybe, but I, I think I like this one better. There's a reference in 1 Chronicles 24 that gives a list of 24 priests who were given the responsibility to work in the temple that Solomon built. Halfway there. In verse 5, there's thunder and lightning coming from the throne. And thunder and lightning was often an accompanying aspect of God's presence, like Isaiah 6, but also out on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai in uh, Exodus 19.18 says, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire and the whole mountain trembled violently. Also in verse 5, there are seven lamps before the throne. Zechariah had a vision in Zechariah 4.2 of these four lamps. Also in Exodus 25, we read about some kind of lamp being constructed that has seven burning lamps. This is also known as the menorah. In uh, verse 6, before the throne was a sea of crystal glass. In 2 Chronicles 4.2, we read that the altar at the temple had a bronze sea that had water in it, that, and water has a reflective crystal-like surface. Ezekiel saw that exact same clear sea of glass in his vision in Ezekiel 1.22, and the four living creatures also show up in Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6. How are we doing? That was nine in five verses, and, and we didn't even mention them all. Because this vision is steeped in the Old Testament. When you take it out of its context, it means nothing, or actually can mean whatever you want. We've got to embed it in the Old Testament first. But the second is first century Roman type of imagery. And here's what I mean by this. Verse 9 says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 
a first century Roman person who Jews living in Asia Minor who read this were first century Roman people. They weren't citizens, but they, they knew about it, would immediately recognize, hang on, this kind of praise that goes back and forth in the casting of crowns, that happens to Caesar on his throne. There would be choirs in Caesar's throne room who would sing praise, who would loft praises back and forth. And they would, they would take their, their crowns or their, their golden wreaths and throw them at his feet. If you went into a temple, say, of Apollo, there would be all these things laying at, at the feet of the altar of where Apollo was worshipped. So there are first century Roman references as well. So what? Are any of you thinking that? Oh, this is cool, but I don't know what's going on. It's, and, that's, and I've done this intentionally because we've started to, like, we go into a forest of Revelation and we start studying, oh, this leaf is cool. Wait, 24 thrones and elders. Hmm, what could that be? And we start, like, turning a leaf over and trying to, th- what, like, it, does, it doesn't matter. Would you, um, Justin, throw up that, that picture of the political cartoon again. Why do you think the donkey has seven stars? Hmm. Does that matter? No. The fact that he has stars and they're white on a blue background, that matters, but not that there's seven of them. You see, we're starting to, to zone in on such minute details that we're going to miss the rest of the picture. So as, as nerdy as I got just now, we need to fly up and find the main thing and see that it's going to be the plain thing. And make sure that that's where we land. We can, we can come down and pick up an image here and there, but unless we, we start studying the, the forest, we're going to miss it. So let's fly up. What is Revelation 4 all about? Revelation 4 is that there's one sitting on the throne. It doesn't even receive a proper name, really. There's just a sitting one, and he's receiving worship from everything, from everyone. Now, we know it's God because the, the hymns reveal that he's Lord God. Worthy are you, Lord. And also, we can pick that up because in Isaiah 6, Isaiah clearly sees the throne room of God. Ezekiel 1 sees God's mobile throne room. It's got wheels on it. It's really interesting. But it's God sitting on his throne, being worshipped by everyone. And that's the main image that we need to take away. So we see God on his throne. He's ruling over everything and being continually worshipped as Lord of the universe. And for John, the veil between heaven and earth was taken away for this moment, and he saw what was going on at that moment. He knew that was going on when Isaiah saw it, when Ezekiel saw it, and he knew that it would continue always. The ultimate truth of what is always happening is that God is sitting on a throne, ruling over the world, being worshipped for the creator that he is. So before we move on to chapter 5, it's very important to note, for the rest of Revelation, we are concerned with taking this image of worship of God on his throne and moving it down to earth. Spoiler alert, it happens at the end. But the question is how? Because there's something wrong with the earth that a holy God can contain things, but it's kind of dangerous for us. Because the the Israelites had to go through a lot of rituals to become holy enough to go into God's presence and worship him. That there's something something about the earth that that God has to fix. 
So the question is how? And the fun thing is, we're going to get an answer. And we're going to get an answer to how heaven and earth finally come back together, but remember, not in a literal way, but in a figurative way through images and metaphors. So in order to see the full function of chapter 4, we have to keep reading into chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we will see the beginning of how heaven and earth are going to be reunited. Here we go. Chapter 5, this is where we get to a really cool character. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open up the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So this lion character is receiving the ability. He is worthy to take the scroll from God's hand and open it. And what's inside of it? If we fast forward to chapter 6, we start to see these seals being opened. It's where the four horsemen of the apocalypse are. Have you heard of that? So the four horsemen of the apocalypse come out of that. Remember, they're symbols and metaphors of something in the real world. We don't have time for it. I'm sorry. I'd love to. But what happens is the lion is opening the scroll, and evil, represented by those horsemen, is exposed for what it truly is, albeit through images and metaphors. But evil is being revealed. There's a revelation of what evil really is as these scrolls are opened. And later on, we see things continue to happen that are coming out of this scroll that is revealing more and more evil about the world. But it's always going a bit deeper each time. For example, Rome, uh, around, I think, chapter 10 or 11, 12, 13, don't quote me on that. I just quoted four chapters. I don't know, obviously. Um, (laughs) Rome is identified as an evil, like, Rome itself is an evil. Like, they, they said, oh, aren't you glad we're here? Don't you love our roads? Don't you love the peace? Well, yeah, but 50 years ago, you came and killed my grandpa. Like, that's not, that's evil, Rome. You, you know you're evil. You're just, you know, trying to suggest that you're good. But underneath Rome is another deeper evil that, that is rearing its head in that day and age as Rome. In the past, it, it reared its, its head in, in Babylon, in Assyria. And that evil yet has another level underneath it, the ultimate evil, which is Satan and death itself. And Jesus has to go through and remove this evil, reveal it, remove it, reveal it, remove it, reveal and remove it, and and expose it for what it really is. And once the scroll is open, that's what we see. So my, uh, my wife and I were in the middle of remodeling a house. I wouldn't say in the middle, we're definitely at the beginning. Yesterday, we put up a new 10-foot section of fence, and it's glorious. It's the first new thing that we've put into this house. It looks really good. But the thing is, we're having to, to gut the house. We're having to get rid of a lot of it. Um, there's, there's water leaks. There's all kinds of things. So when you have a water leak, how do you know? Something floods, or you see a brown spot on the ceiling, if, if you're lucky, if it's a slow enough leak. Well, you, you can hide your eyes from it and just pray it'll go away and pray it'll stop. It's not going to. You've got to fix it. 
But you, you go into that area and, and you have to reveal the, the pipe. You got to cut into the wall, cut in the ceiling, get it out of there, uncover it so you can see what is wrong, and only then can you fix it. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing to this earth as the scroll is being opened. It's important to note that this is a lion. But then John turns and sees the character who is actually opening these scrolls. Read in in verse 6 with me. And between the throne, I saw the four living creatures. And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, we sang these words this morning, by the way, And we're about to sing them again. It's going to be awesome. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So, let's focus on the majors. Let's not talk about the seven eyes and the seven horns. There's 30 minutes of talk we could do about that, but we're going to leave it there. And what is going on here? The, the lion that John hears, he turns and sees, actually, it's a lamb. But, but it, it's looking, it, it's, it's got a wound. I imagine this, this lamb with its pure white wool has been cut and, and it's bleeding. And yet it's still standing. And it's, it goes to the throne and it takes the scroll and then it receives worship. But why can this lamb take the scroll and have the power to open it? Don't skip over these songs. They're really important. Worthy are you, this is verse 9, to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. If you haven't caught on yet, this is Jesus. In the Gospel of John, He's clearly identified as, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is Jesus. He approaches the throne, he takes the scroll, and he receives worship, the exact same worship that God on the throne received in chapter 4. God and the throne, God and the Lamb are both on the throne receiving worship and power and glory and honor because Jesus is the one who has the key to reveal and remove evil from the earth. Jesus' death and resurrection gives him that key to reveal and remove the evil. So remember, back in chapter 4, we see the one sitting on the throne, it's clearly God, and the lamb was slain, and yet he has the power to approach, to take the scroll, to open it up, and reveal and remove evil. So I'm going to bring this down to earth for a second. That was kind of a joke, nobody got it. Now you laugh. (laughs) Oh, there it is. Takes a couple seconds. Okay. What is the evil in your life that Jesus can reveal and then remove? Because that's what he has the power to do. Maybe it's an evil that you know about. 
Maybe it's something that, that you've, been, you've been keeping to yourself and you've built your own little throne and it's a plastic little tyke's toddler throne and you're sitting on it and, and you're, you're trying to sit on it and say, no, God, I can rule this part of my life. Yeah, I know that you're on your throne and that's great, but, but I, I have mine here. One day Jesus is gonna rip you off of that throne, send a fireball, blow it up, and you're gonna be left with nothing except some, except some pain. I heard a testimony of someone who recently had, he had an experience like this. He was living this secret life of sin. He, he kind of knew about it, but also he's like, that's ah, not really a big deal. I can keep doing it. Like, it's not going to hurt. But one day it hurt, and, and it got revealed, and, and it came out, and, and, and his life started to, to fall apart. My friends, please bring that evil out into the light and let Jesus take care of it. It might be painful. In fact, I, it will be painful, but it is ultimately good. It is ultimately good when we reveal, when we allow Jesus to reveal and remove that evil in our life. So what is it? What is that evil in your life? Because this scroll that was in God's right hand has been taken by the Lamb, and the day is coming when all evil will be removed from this world. It will be revealed and removed, and then something special happens. And it's actually something that can happen right now in someone who allows Jesus to do it to their own life. But I'm getting ahead of myself because it's whiteboard time. <laughs> I used to be a school teacher, and so I use I used whiteboard all the time. So every time I get a chance to use it, I'm going to use it. Let's talk more about the scroll. The scroll, remember, it's a blueprint for, for God's plan to reveal and remove evil. In chapter 6, no, I'll start here. Um, so Jesus has accomplished something already. There's the cross. Is that big enough? I don't know. There's a cross, and then there's also an empty tomb. This is the empty tomb. It's dark inside because Jesus is not there to shine the light. And then as we move forward, we eventually get to this place where there is a throne. And Jesus and God are sitting on it. There's the, the emerald rainbow we read about in chapter 4. So here's what has happened. This is what is coming. When Jesus opens the scroll, he breaks the seven seals. And as... My marker's running out. Let me get a new one. As those seals are opened, things start to happen. Those four horsemen of the apocalypse come out, and evil is revealed for what it truly is. By the time we get to number six and seven, it seems like whatever evil was revealed is removed, and then God is on earth reigning with the saints. But once we get to that seventh scroll, something else comes out of it. Contained within that seventh scroll, seal, sorry, these are seals. Now we have trumpets. We have seven trumpets that come out of the seventh seal. And so here's the, the seven trumpets. They're all sounded. Evil is revealed. And then by six, it seems to be gone away. By seven, God is reigning on earth once again with the saints. Now, in the seventh trumpet, the case can be made, because if, if you read it, it's not super clear, but there's enough, enough scholars and myself that agree that within the seventh trumpet, there is another set of seven which is seven bowls. So within the seventh bowl are, sorry, within the seventh trumpet are the seven bowls. And again, by the time we get to the sixth bowl, 
things have gotten worse. Because when Jesus reveals and removes evil at a deeper level each and every time, evil's holding on tighter to this world. And in order to loosen that grip, what happens to the earth seems to be getting worse. And so in these bowls, there's words about a third of the creatures of the sea pass away. A third of the stars in the sky fall down. And by the time we get to the sixth one, and every evil is revealed and removed, including Satan himself, it seems as though the earth is just a shadow of its former self. But then, finally, once this evil revealed and removed, once this evil and this evil, Satan and death himself is revealed and removed in Revelation 19 and 20, now the throne can finally descend to the earth. And the earth is redeemed. It's made new. There, there's a brand new garden slash city, very similar to the Garden of Eden, where God, there's no temple because God and the Lamb are sitting on the throne and reigning right there. And, and the people of God are also in that space that encompasses the entire earth. And that is what we see by the end of Revelation, once everything is revealed and removed. And it's only once all this evil is revealed and removed that heaven and earth can be reunited. But until that day, you and I live in this world where it's still here. And we have to do our best as a follower of Jesus to allow Jesus to be the Lord of our life and allow him to reveal and remove the evil in us because this is special. And if you confess that Jesus is your Lord, he will begin to bring this into you. Have any of you ever saw someone and it might often happen during, during music and, and worship, where they seem to be in this different space. They just seem to not be here or there. Some of you may have experienced this. It's as though that they've, they've been transported somewhere else. I had an experience like this when I was in, uh, in, in high school at a youth conference uh, in San Jose. Um, it, was, it was a Mennonite youth conference. I grew up Mennonite good farm boy. And uh, the last worship session of this conference, the, the band just kind of kept playing songs. It was though God, God was definitely there, definitely moving, and we didn't want it to end, even though we, were, we knew we were, shouldn't be boarding the bus at this time, but we didn't want to leave. And I felt as though, during one of the songs, I felt as though the presence of God was like mere inches above my head. And I wanted to touch it. But I remember, I was a good farming Kansas Mennonite boy, and, and I, I, I sang well, but I sure didn't look like I enjoyed it. That's what you do in central Kansas. I have, I've had to break myself of that, because in that moment, that was the first time that I had raised my hand, and it was because God's presence, it was right there. And I raised my hand, and I didn't have theology for it back then, but I do now. And I, I think something happened where, where God allowed me to pierce this space where the veil of heaven and earth was very thin, just above our heads. And it's not because I'm tall that I was able to get there. Sean would be able to get there a lot easier if that were the case. But God's presence was right there and I reached out and I touched it and I felt it. I felt heat hit my palm, go over my arm, down into the rest of my body. And I believe for the first time, 
that was when I was truly filled with the Holy Spirit, the full presence of God in me and just overflowing with an abundance. And that moment, that moment changed me. Feeling the presence of God, entering into that convergent space where there's the throne room of God, that changed me. And some of you I know have had those kind of experiences as well. And if you've ever seen someone do it, I'm sorry, but you can't get there by doing this. That's not how you get there. You get there by confession that Jesus is your Lord. You get there by by confessing and repenting of the evil and rebellion that you've done against God and his plan for the redemption of creation. And you do it by allowing Jesus to come into your life and reveal and remove the evil from your life. Earlier that week, that had been my experience. Every session was just rocking me to the core about, like, yeah, I believe in this God, but it's not actually changing anything. And so what what am I supposed to do? And so I I started to understand for the first time that that something in my life needed to change, but I couldn't do it. It was God who was going to do it. And so I was wanting to allow him to come in and take over. And that's why I think in that last worship session, God allowed me to enter this transcendent space, this convergent space of where heaven and earth meet. And my friends, every one of you who has confessed Jesus as your Lord has this chance to enter this convergent space. With the power of the Holy Spirit inside you, you're well on your way. You're well on your way to becoming a place where heaven and earth can meet. And you can't get there by imitating. It's only by repentance, confession, and allowing Jesus to come in and remove to reveal and remove the evil life. There will always be evil in our world until the cycle of seven is complete. But until that day, Jesus is the one who can reveal and remove the evil in your life so that heaven and earth can meet in you.